Hello, everybody, and welcome to History's Trainwrecks. As a special treat, and no doubt a welcome relief to my listeners, you get to hear something other than me droning on on this episode of History's Trainwrecks. I'm joined by author Kelly Stone Gamble, who is not a train wreck, by the way, to talk about her historical novel, Ragtown, which is releasing on September 12th, 2023. For those of you longtime listeners, I first mentioned Kelly and Ragtown in History's Trainwrecks episode 17, What's in a Damn Name, where I talked about the kerfuffle involved in naming or not naming Hoover Dam, and I got to say damn a lot without my mom accusing me of broadcasting profanity. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, how much did you say I'm getting paid for this? It's a lot. Um, we don't like to talk numbers, but, uh, <laughs> you know, just wait by your mailbox for the big, Excellent. big Excellent. I shall. And I have to say, one of the things I I want to say is that this is a big fan moment for me because I've read all of your books at this point, and we're friends on Facebook, but very rarely do I get to simply just say out loud, I really admire your writing. And when I read your books, I wish I could write like that. And it makes me jealous and angry and bitter, but we don't have to talk about that. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, I just, um, you're one of the writers where if you come out with a new book, I'm going to buy it without seeing it. I'm going to read it as soon as I can get my hands on it. And um, as long as you remind me, I will put a review out, <laughs> um, you know, but I, I've read all of your novels. And so um, the where I first encountered you as a writer was with your fiction series, uh, the Cass Adams books about life in a small town and the unexpected ways a garden shovel can be deployed in resolving marital disputes. So um, even though my listeners are history nerds, I would also encourage you to pretty much just read everything that Kelly has written because they're all good and um, you'll get quite a kick out of it. They are unique. But in that sense, it feels like Ragtown might be a bit of a departure from what you usually, what you've done in the past. So tell us what this book is about and why it it captured your imagination to uh, do the work that it took to write it. Well, uh, Ragtown actually was written before the Cass Adams novels that you're referring to, the shovel novels. Uh, it just has taken me a good 12 years to rewrite Ragtown and uh, get it out into the public. Um, and I started on it. I was working on a bachelor's degree. I had to do a final project on something that involved both history and business and uh, trying to find an easy A. I lived in Las Vegas. The Hoover Dam was right there. I thought this has got to be the easiest thing to write about. Um, so I went to the museum and kind of fell down a rabbit hole once I started learning about some of the history uh, of the dam. I couldn't stop. Uh, some of the stories, uh, they have an oral history project they did, and I helped them with that. I transcribed several interviews. I got to interview some of the workers um, and their families that had been in Nevada in 1931. And the stories were just amazing. You know, I, we read, you know, we read histories. We read about things that have happened in the past. And typically history is written by the people who, um, well, we all make ourselves the hero in our own stories, right? <laughs> right. But with oral histories, it's just everyday people. And their stories are so compelling. Um, so I really got into it. And um, the best way I knew to bring these stories out was to write a novel. And that's what I did. 
Well, that's and that's interesting to me too because on on this show, you know, we tend to focus on the the big names or the biggest train wrecks. And it sounds like uh, Ragtown is about people we've never heard of or or might not otherwise have heard of. You're not talking about the chief engineer on the dam and Herbert Hoover himself and all the names that we might recognize. You chose to go in a direction of let's look at what happened from the people who lived in the shadow of the dam and what they had to go through to survive because the Great Depression was going on. And then at the same time, do this monumental feat of building. So um, so tell me about about how that resonated with you. And I'm sure that you have a ton of great damn stories. Oh, I have so many damn stories. Like I said, there are, I think there's about 100 of the oral histories that the uh, Boulder City Library houses now. Uh, and each one of these are just full of stories. You know, with an oral history... For some reason, something resonated with someone, and they remembered that story to tell later. Uh, later, when they're interviewed, and, and a lot of these people were in their 80s, sometimes 90s, and they're telling stories about their experiences in 1930. So, whatever kind of stuck with them is what you get, um, and and that's always very interesting to me. You know, when I'm 80 and someone says, "What were you doing in your 20s?" What am I going to say, right? So uh, that's actually a very scary thought. But anyway, <laughs> so, yeah, there are some amazing stories about the dam. Um, one that I used a lot of these stories in the book. I created scenes out of them. If you've read the book, which I think you you might be in the middle of or something, um, the there's a scene about fire ants. And that came from the oral histories that um, actually happened. So um, as horrendous as that was, that's one that actually happened. But there's so many stories and you just tell me when to stop. (laughs) Well, So you've listened to our show. So you know that we tend to favor train wrecks, stories where, you know, somebody's got everything going for them and then. Uh, usually by their own design, they screw it up. And so any other than Herbert Hoover himself, (laughs) was there anybody involved in in the research that you found out about the dam where it's like, wow, that guy just messed it up? Uh, Well, you know, first of all, I do have to mention Hoover because uh, he wasn't popular at the time, of course, and he actually visited um, the dam project one day and went to the mess hall where the guys typically ate, and they wouldn't stop booing. He couldn't even speak, and they kept booing, and he eventually left. So that was Hoover's big uh, visit to see the dam workers while they were uh, at lunch. They probably were just upset because he was interrupting their lunch, but um, that's good old Hoover. As far as people who were train wrecks, um. <laughs> well, you've got Boy, some, I you've got to, some, uh, you do have some criminal underworld figures going on in Ragtown, don't you? <laughs> right, right. Well, um, my gangsters were, are completely fictional. Of course, I, I read a lot about gangsters in Vegas during the time and created mine, 
uh, without using any real names because, you know, maybe if one of the old gangsters is still alive, I don't want to be on his list. That's all so you need. <laughs> they are wholly invented. Um, <laughs> but they're, you know, they're, well, Bud Bodell, who, who in my book is the chief of security and also the Boulder City police officer, he was real. And um, I did put him in some fictional situations, and he does tend to come off as the bad guy. Um, but based on a lot of the oral histories, it kind of fits his personality. That's interesting. And so, you know, it feels like the depression, at least in this kind of situation, um, a lot of the people in the shadow of the dam were trying to avoid the authorities. Like, uh, they didn't want to get caught doing what they were doing. Many of them might have been running away from home or, you know, escaping um, bad situations. And so it feels like they kind of had to thread the needle between I need this job to survive, but when the cops come around, I'm going to be somewhere else. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, people from all over the country, every state was represented uh, on the dam and people from all over the country. Of course, they were starving. They were out of work. And yes, there was a significant criminal element. And uh, a lot of people would apply for jobs on the dam. If they didn't get a call, they would put in another application under a different name. Uh, they would have several applications. So many of the people working there were working under assumed names, and it's very difficult to find records of some of them because of that. And then, of course, the Hoovervilles, the, um, the squatters camps that were outside of the dam project on it, on the way to Las Vegas, that was a pretty rough area. Um, there were no rules. There was no one patrolling out there. Um, it was just thousands of people living in the desert trying to make their way. And there were families, too. I mean, so, you know, yeah. uh, these men who came to work on the dam, they'd bring their wives and their children with them. And they, in most cases, were the only protection that their families had. But they had to leave every day to go work on the dam. And so yeah, if they were. If they were yeah, lucky enough to have a job. And, you know, uh, six companies, the company that was contracted to build the dam, they hadn't anticipated all of these people bringing their families. Uh, they they thought there would be some. And once they got a job or once they got a job, they would send for their families. But they didn't anticipate that at all. And they had a, um, a river camp, a barrack that was kind of built into the side of the mountain that they had set up for the initial uh, workers that they hired, but it was strictly for single workers. And when they realized that so many had brought their families, they had to uh, really push the button on the city of Boulder City that they had planned, but they just hadn't planned on doing it as quickly as they needed to with all these people living in the desert. And so did you find in your research that having families there with the workers kind of kept people in line or was it the opposite? Uh, you know, I, I think having your family there keeps any man in line a little bit. <laughs> One would hope. Whether you're in the 1930s or not. Um, you know, I mean, it was, it was a real strain, but um, you know, a lot of the women and the children were just very strong. And I think that it helped the men to know that they 
had that to go home to and help them to know to remind them of their responsibility. Yes. And so in the book, um, if something happened to the man of the family, mm-hmm. then that was it. The the wives and children and, and all that, they were on their own. And in most cases, they had to leave. Um, right. Right. And but they had no means of support and it was the end of the line for them. Right. Uh, you know, if they if a worker was killed at the dam, there was a small, you know, a small amount of money that six companies would give to the families. But um, in a lot of cases and in my book, I this is actually one of the reasons one of the people died, because I wanted to explore that, you know, the the, the tunnels were just toxic and this book, they are building the diversion tunnels and they were just toxic. And so there were men that were literally poisoned to death because of the fumes in the tunnel. However, a lot of them, the official diagnosis of their death was pneumonia or consumption. And by doing that, by not admitting to, yeah, we're poisoning people, uh, they got away with not paying after their death. So several, yeah, yeah, several people that did die um, should have gotten, their family should have gotten some money, but they didn't. Well, and that's a story that (laughs) repeats in American history uh, uh, and world history quite a lot is, oh, they didn't, they didn't die of, uh, we didn't kill them. They just spontaneously fell down. Um, So, yeah. Um, Are there any other characters in the novel who are based on historical figures? Uh, several, as I said, Bud Bodell, um, Kehoe, the Indian, which the book begins with the renegade Indian. Um, I, his story is so fascinating to me. I wanted to have it somewhere in there and I thought a good place would be the beginning and the end. Um, and then use him as, you know, he, he's dead in the, in the book, you know, he is a character that, um, Helen kind of takes two and hides in his cave, but he is dead at that time. So, so tell, you know, yeah, so has, tell us about him. Um, he is absolutely he, fascinating. He was a, um, he was an Indian. Um, sorry for the politically incorrect term, but his, you know, everything you read about him, it's Kehoe, the renegade Indian. Um, he, has a, such a he's got such a history, but uh, long story short, he was um, considered Nevada's first um, mass murderer. He uh, killed some people, um, stole a lot of goods, and they couldn't catch him for many, many years. He disappeared into the mountains surrounding the what where the dam is now. And when the workers were there, he kind of became the scapegoat for anything that happened. You know, if uh, if someone was found dead, they blamed it on Kehoe. So, you know, um, all of this time, of course, once they did eventually find his body, he couldn't possibly have done all of it because he had been dead for several years. But um the workers at Ragtown and the other uh, little camps, that's how they would spend their time. There was a huge reward for Kehoe. And so they would spend a lot of their spare time up in the mountains looking for him. 
That was their and, pastime, was searching for Kehoe in the mountains. And in your book, your main character, Helen, finds his hideout. Yes. Um, his cave with all yes. the stuff that he had stolen uh, and right. his his skeleton, right? Yes. So yes. He starts but, off dead. You know, she's a she's a woman and she's not she can't claim the reward. Right. So uh, there's also uh, Ida Browder, which I talk a little bit about in the book. She's a woman who she's an amazing woman. She was uh, one of the she was the first businesswoman in the city of Boulder City. And it is true that she did hold money for a lot of the dam workers. Uh, before the before banks opened in the town, uh, they would take their money to her and she would hide it. And she was kind of their savings account. And uh, she became a very important figure in the city of Boulder City in general. And um, I would love to I'd love to write a book about her, honestly, because she's an amazing character. But uh, one of my favorite people who um, is in the book briefly is Johnny Behind the Rock. And in one or two of the oral histories, Johnny Behind the Rock is mentioned, and that's the only name they have for him, Johnny Behind the Rock. And he was an older man who had absolutely nothing, and he lived behind a large boulder in Ragtown. He had nothing. He relied on the generosity of others, and he would come out from behind his rock to go down to the river, get something to drink, grab whatever can somebody left for him, and would go back behind his rock. That is literally the only thing that I was ever able to find about him. And I, you know, I kind of feel like, again, we hear about all all the famous people in history, but the reality is Johnny Behind the Rocks are important figures too because they existed and so i really felt like i had to put him in my book and give him some kind of a tribute that uh you know i know he existed i see you kind of thing well i think Uh, that's true i think that's true for for all the characters in the book because you know when you go to hoover dam and you look at the immensity of it um i think it's important to remember that ordinary people just like us had to go into those tunnels and blow stuff up and haul rocks out and risk their lives on ropes hanging off the side of a mountain to get it done. And that's something that's not often remembered uh, when in the histories. So, right. you know, the reason I love this book is because this is what it talks about. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that history is made by ordinary people as right. much as it is by the great men of history. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, we just don't often hear about them. Right. Which surprises me because the everyday person, their stories are amazing. You know, I mean, anytime we tell a story, we are to a certain extent, the hero of our own story. Right. Right. And so sometimes they're embellished. um, And that's what oral histories are. A lot of these stories can't necessarily be verified. But they happened or they happened and and we're getting the perspective of that person. Uh, The fire ant story, for example, for some reason, that was so horrific that it stuck with this woman for 50, 60 years. You know, so what is it that we're going to remember and what stories are we going to tell? And I just think that's that's absolutely fascinating. 
Well, and from a storyteller's perspective, like you had said earlier, if if this is what sticks out in your mind 60 years later, it's a doozy. I mean, it's a it's got to be a heck of a story. Exactly. Um, right. And so and I also think that, um, you know, for we history nerds, when I study history, I wish I was like Theodore Roosevelt, but I know I'm not. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> when I'm when I read stories like Ragtown, I see people there where I go, oh, yeah, yeah, that would be me. I would I would um, I would, you know, be killed on my first day of work at the dam. But that's you know, that's where I would fit in the grand scheme of history. And it's and and so it's kind of good from time to time to read a story, a historical event that you can actually identify with. You can say, you know what, if I was there, I could see me doing this, but I'm not Herbert Hoover. So, you know, I, I, that's why I like this book so much. Right. Well, you know, I do that too when I read historical works as I'm like, oh, that's me. There, I'm that girl. But with this one, I can't tell you how I, I, I definitely would not have been Helen. I would have caved so fast. It would have been amazing. Um, the pressure would have been way too much for me. And, and I mean, it was for her to a certain extent, but then she said, wait a minute, I can't do this. Uh, but I don't think I could have been that strong. Um, I most likely would have been one of the women that puts an ad in the paper and looking for a husband. Oh, see, I thought you would have been the mayor of Boulder city. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, and Boulder city itself is a very interesting place because the, um, uh, the government built Boulder city for the workers, of course, but they also, it was an experiment of sorts. Uh, they built it intending it to be an example of the great American city. Okay. Um, and they, they were very specific in the way they did this. They had uh, businesses that had little, if any competition, you know, one movie theater, one candy shop, everyone who lived in the town had to be an employee of the dam or one of these shops. So there was during the great depression, Zero unemployment in the city of Boulder City. It was a gorgeous little town. They had beautiful city parks. They had um, everything that anyone could need. And the government would do experiments on people. <laughs> Here's where, here we go. You're ready for the conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, and an example is um, they had a tennis court. If you can even imagine how horrible it would be to play tennis in the middle of the desert, but they had a tennis court and there were scientists per se there that would put, I don't know what they would call them, some kind of monitors or meters on people playing tennis and they would record their body's reactions to the heat as they played tennis. And they did lots of little experiments like that on the residents of Boulder city, which is kind of fun, right? Yeah. It's um, it, it feels like they were going for some kind of utopia. That's also right. a company store. That's also a kind of a science lab. Um, yes. Yeah. Cause they, they weren't a hundred percent sure what they were really going for. So they kind of tried everything. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And Boulder City today, if you've ever been to Las Vegas, have you ever been to out to the dam? Uh, We uh, if you read my book, uh, (laughs) Trailer (laughs) Trash with a girl's name, you know that our 
recreational vehicle broke down um, right before we went over the wall into Lake Mead, which we uh, managed to survive. So yes, we were in a big hurry to get out of there. Uh, we uh, a lot of our adventures in the RV, uh, we took sightseeing tours that nearly killed us. So <laughs> after after the adventure at the dam, I was like, how do we get out of here as fast as we can? So we left. <laughs> Right. Well, you know, Boulder City, one of the things, uh, Sims Eli was uh, the city manager, and basically he made the rules of the city. And one thing that they he said was there's no alcohol and no gambling within the city limits, uh, because, you know, of course, that would just be not good for the dam workers. They had to go to work every day. And to this day, uh, there is no gambling within the city limits of Boulder City, which is interesting because it is so close to Vegas. Right. That's interesting. So Boulder City is still kind of an experiment. <laughs> yeah, Boulder City like. is a is a is a lovely little town. It's a beautiful little community, and um, you know, it's the city that's the town that built the dam. Right, and it feels like with Ida Browder. In Boulder City, you might just have another book going on. Uh, I, I'll tell you, um, could be. <laughs> so to that end, um, it sounds like a lot of your research was the oral histories. Was there any other, what else did you find that was useful in ferreting out some of the stories of the ordinary people who worked on the dam? Well, I, you know, it, it, I use the oral histories a lot, of course, Um there's a lot of material that was available at the Hoover Dam Museum, and at the time, the um, the curator that was Dennis McBride, who also wrote a book about the Hoover Dam, and uh, he was kind of a mentor for me. He and I did a lot of on-foot research <laughs> sometimes. Um, I used the archives at the Nevada State Museum. I read old newspaper clippings. I went to the UNLV archives. I basically read everything I could get my hands on. Um, but one of the things that's kind of interesting is, as I said, the uh, outside the city limits, it was pretty rough. But at one time, a bunch of the residents, residents I'll call them, that lived out in the camps, uh, and, and we're talking thousands and thousands of people, they got together and um, built a school called the Railroad Pass School. It was a one-room schoolhouse. And it was just right in the middle of the madness. And there are a few pictures, not a lot, but there are a few pictures and um, a few references to the school in uh, some of the some of the histories and just some of the history in general. Um, So Dennis, the curator of the museum and I, one day we were like, let's go let's go explore the desert and see where the school was. And um, we did. And we found the actual site. And then, of course, we decided to, well, what happened to the school? What happened to this building? And we became little detectives for a few days and found where a newspaper article where it had been sold, the man's name that it had been sold to. We found his address in an old phone book. Uh, We drove by that particular address, which now existed, and we discovered that the schoolhouse had been turned into a garage in Boulder City. So that's just kind of the kind of detective work I think historical fiction writers do. And that's something that will never be in the book, of course. But it was fun. It was fun to track down the schoolhouse. 
And did you did you find that you had to put a put a forcible end to some of these rabbit holes? Because you're like, wow, I can't spend all my time chasing down, oh, you know, the, yes. the neat the neat tidbit of information I discovered in the archives. You know, there's there's so much that I didn't include in this book. <laughs> there's just so much because I would fall down a lot of rabbit holes. And yeah, I did at some point just have to say, okay, I need to move on. I need to move past this particular, you know, I spent a week with Dennis hunting down a schoolhouse that I knew would never be in my book right. just because I wanted to know what happened to the schoolhouse. Yeah. Um, so yeah, at some point you just have to, but, you know, then again, sometimes you keep going and then you find something and your whole story changes. Right. Well, and that's the I guess that's why it took so long. <laughs> but, you know, if you want to get it right, you've got to do the research and you've got to at least take some of these things and see how far they go before you're like, OK, I can't use that. You know, yeah, um, well, I'm going to be honest with you and nobody else. I'm Here's here's the scoop. OK, you get the scoop on this. All right. The reason it took so long to write this book is because originally the protagonist was a male worker at the dam. His name was Lance Camino. And Helen was kind of the side chick. Okay. But as I had people read it and go through it and this and that and the other, everyone loved Helen because she was tough, she was strong. And Lance, was a little bit of a wimp to be working on the dam, okay? And I kept trying to make him stronger, and he just he just wouldn't evolve for me. Um, so I finally rewrote it and put Helen in the lead and basically just killed Lance off and um, inserted a new male character, somebody that was a little more on Helen's level um and that being Ezra who I like Ezra I like Ezra a lot um because he is not over you know he's not testosterone filled uh like some of the guys were but he's not he's not as wimpy as Lance Camino was so goodbye Lance and that's what basically took so long once I finally realized it was Helen's story um I had to rewrite the whole thing, which I did several times. (laughs) Well, that's just uh, sometimes that's just how it goes. So one of the things that I think will be of particular interest to those of us who are history nerds is that at the end of every chapter, you've got an author note and and they read like, well, since you just gave me the inside story about uh, Dapper Lance Camino, the the (laughs) author notes, the author notes are kind of your uh, insight into how you you're telling this story and where you know some of your information came from and in a lot of cases the the secret uh, you know the behind the curtain stuff so right. what so what made you put the author notes in cuz i i don't think i've read a book that's got chapter well, author there notes there we go see trailblazing right? Um, right i don't think i've read a book that had these notes in it And, you know, Ragtown was originally on the Vela platform, which had uh, author notes following it. And it was very successful on Vela. And a lot of the readers really enjoyed those 
author notes. And I think it works well for historical fiction. It's a way for the author to say, hey, this really happened or, you know, to go into a little bit more detail and in the areas that don't require that to just kind of reflect a little bit on what this particular thing meant to them. Um, One of the chapters, um, Helen is singing a lullaby. And uh, in the author's note, I say, you know, when I was envisioning this, I was thinking about a lullaby that my grandmother used to sing to me. You know, so it's kind of interesting, not only from the historical perspective, but for a reader to see the, you know, how human writers can be at times, too. And so, yeah, yeah. trailblazing, maybe it will become a new thing for historical works, particularly um, to have some kind of author notes Included. I think so. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, I lead. A, I read a lot of nonfiction history and then I end up watching interviews of the authors on YouTube and things like that, where they kind of talk about the process and, you know, why they wrote a book about this character and not that character and why they chose to focus on this time period, not that time period. And that's the kind of stuff that gets me, because why do we study history? What are we trying to get out of it? And it's different for everybody. But the cool part about the author notes is I got a sense of, well, here's what really happened. And here's what I, what I took from it to tell a really interesting story. But um, just so you know, here's what's really going on. So the reader gets both. The reader gets the exciting fiction, fictionalized account. But also, if you wanted to just look at the history, here's where you can go find it. And I think that's great. Right. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, some people, they read a historical fiction and for the rest of their life think that's the truth oh, yeah. you know? <laughs> so i i thought it was good to tell people at some point that you know yeah this was i, I kind of added things to this um yeah right well and i think it, it works on on many levels and so yeah, yeah. so to to sum up uh, where i started um Ragtown is a great book. It it tells a great story, and that's ultimately what history is, is the story of what happened. Um, And at the same time, it gives us an insight into more than just the monument, more than just what the newspapers back east said about Hoover Dam. Um, You know, the the engineering marvel and how it was going to revolutionize the Western United States. And while all of that may have been true, a lot of the reason why it turned out the way it did was because a bunch of guys had to go into toxic tunnels and every day and and do their dangerous jobs. And so uh, and and the other thing that the book gets across is what life was like in the Depression and the reason everybody seemed to want to go to the dam, like when we were building the cross uh, the Continental Railroad uh, in the previous century, that's where the jobs were. And right. and. This was a time where a job was was literally a matter of life and death the way it has never been since. And so there's a lot going on in Ragtown. Uh, and right. so I, of course, am recommending it to everybody, and I will definitely uh, do that. I'm going to put links in the show notes and on our various social media pages so that people know where to find you and where to find Ragtown, because I think that um, history nerds aside... I think there's quite a lot of people who would be interested in your other books as well. So <laughs> from it, from the fan perspective, what's next after Ragtown? What do you have on the 
Uh, Well, I got a little bit more serious. I have a uh, book that is currently with um, my agent. He's trying to sell it, uh, which is about um, homelessness. Um, It is a fictional it's a fictional story about a woman who um, is saved from a bus by a homeless man and what she does to dig into his background and his life. Um, which I really like the book. One of my readers said, this is the best one you've ever written. I'm like, oh, well, great. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I think all of them are great myself, but, you know, wonderful. Hopefully it'll sell. And I'm kind of working on something else, which is related to more of a contemporary issue. I like to write different things. I like to write a little bit of everything. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen that. Um, yeah. And, and I think that that's, I think that that's good because the cool part about Ragtown and your other books is you kind of go where the story takes you. You're not right. you're not so committed. Otherwise, we'd be reading about Lance Camino. Right. So, right. exactly. you know, I, and I think that uh, even our history writers like I'm a fan of David McCullough, who wrote Truman and John Adams and things like that. Right. And he was always fond of saying that, you know, when people ask him, well, what's your theme? What are you going to write this book about? His answer is always, I don't know. I'm going to go do right. my research and I'm going to see where it takes me. And exactly. that always makes it a better book. So, you know, that's exactly the one that my uh, agent has it's the title of it's nobody's hero. I wrote the entire book. And then when I reread it, I went, oh, now I know what the story is. And I started over and wrote another completely different book. So I had an entire novel that was a pre-write. Uh, and that's OK. That's that's a good process for me because it worked. Um, right. And like I said, with Ragtown, seriously, if you had any idea how many times this book <laughs> has been rewritten uh, and the differences, it's it's un, unbelievable. So for um, you, as, for you aspiring writers out there, we're not kidding around. Writing is no. hard. <laughs> Writing oh, yes. is definitely hard. Definitely. If you want to get it right. If you want to get it right. Exactly. So, um, so thanks again, Kelly. I appreciate you coming on the show to talk Ragtown because, you know, I've been a fan of it since all the way back in episode 17, where I was obsessed with Herbert Hoover and all the, the things that made him a train wreck and, why they spent so much time trying not to call it Hoover Dam because, you know, for politics and and clearly uh, Hoover was so unpopular that, you know, I'm sure he, he might've been happy to lose the election so he could just go away. Um, (laughs) And like most historical figures that we revile or we reviled at the time, I, you know, I read his biography that he wrote in the fifties and I was like, you know, he wasn't entirely wrong. He was just, the wrong guy for that particular moment and uh, true uh, yeah and and i mean not to say that he he missed some opportunities that he should have taken but sometimes that's how history works sometimes you're just right. not the right person for that moment um and so uh, you know that's why i i like to read about him and of course my own near-death experience at hoover dam made me a an instant <laughs> i i have to buy this book because you know, people survived it. <laughs> That's good to know. Right. So, um, so the book comes out on September 12th. Uh, yes. It will be available for pre-order uh, as the as the release date gets closer. Um, but in the meantime, while you know, if everybody's waiting, they can go read all your other books and get caught up. 
Um, Absolutely. Right. So, um, like I said, I'll put links to your all your various pages in the show notes. I encourage everybody to get a copy of Ragtown because it's a great read. Um, and if you like history, even even better. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I kind of uh-huh. like it myself. Well, because well, you've written it three times by now, right? So <laughs> you better. More like 30. <laughs> oh, my God, you poor thing. So <laughs> thanks again for coming on the show. And uh, I look forward to getting my copy uh, as soon as I can. Absolutely. Thank you, Stacy. This episode is brought to you by author Kelly Stone Gamble and all of her books. You can get them on Amazon.com, and I'll put the links in the show notes. But particularly, you should check out the Cass Adams series of novels, in which shovels are featured prominently, and the book Ragtown that we just talked about in our episode. So check the show notes and find the link and go ahead and get Kelly's books.